grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ. And may what I seek to offer today be faithful to the Spirit's leading and find receptive hearts so that there will be a blessing. This has been a season with a lot of illness, grief, and disrupted life. And the snow and the ice and the darkness don't help one bit. But there are good ways to respond to a season like this, and there is joy to be found in it too. Joy is actually a theme of the book of Acts, and it describes the growth and development of the early church. Joy is a theme of that book despite the fact that it is full of outright disasters and difficulties and struggles and trials. It's persecutions and imprisonments and beatings and betrayals and shipwrecks and the records of the first Christian martyrs. But joy still keeps winning out because God is in the midst of it all and his people keep seeing that and rejoicing and then spreading their message to those who eagerly desire to receive it. Knowing that we'll definitely be spending at least a couple more weeks doing church online, I wanted to dig into the book of Acts. And I looked for a couple of the most faith-testing situations that we find in there. I wanted to see what God, through his Holy Spirit, might tell us that will help us, encourage us, perhaps challenge us as well as we consider what that kind of faith looks like and how we might grow our own to look more like it. So let's, let's dig in today. And I'll begin with a bit of background to help us get a deeper sense of the passage that Allison read for us earlier. Acts 16 is the beginning of what's called Paul's second missionary journey, his, his first trip into Europe. And he went there with his colleagues Silas and his protege Timothy. And for this leg of the journey, they're joined by Luke, who is the author of the books of Luke and Acts. You hear the language of we in this passage instead of they. And so they went to the region of Macedonia because Paul had been told by a vision that he needed to go there. But their first stop along the way was the colony city of Philippi. And that was a place specially established with this core of loyal Roman citizens where Roman laws and customs were strictly enforced. It was Rome away from Rome, if you will. And they were not allowed to advocate for any non-Roman customs or unapproved religions there, which certainly included Christianity as well as Judaism. And we pick things up in verse 16, where Paul and his party, they keep encountering this servant girl as they go back and forth to this place of prayer that was outside the city. And the girl was afflicted with a demonic spirit. It allowed her to predict certain things, and her owners used this to profit. They sold her services as a fortune teller. And the girl kept following Paul around and speaking words that, in this case at least, were true that these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. But Paul didn't want to be heralded by an evil spirit, and, and who knows what it might have said next. So he exercised the, the demon after he's had enough of this, demanded that it leave her in Jesus' name, and suddenly she was free. Now that was good news for her, and it was very bad news for her owners. So those irate owners dragged Paul and Silas to the city magistrates and they blamed them for causing an uproar and advocating for non-Roman customs. And the city's rulers really wasted no time at all. These unwanted Jews causing commotion it had to be dealt with. So they had Paul and Silas stripped and beaten and flogged and thrown into jail. They were put in stocks. Yeah, they were cold. They were bleeding. They were in tremendous pain after that. And they could have sat sullenly or they could have raged about the injustice of it all. But instead they prayed and they sang praises to God loud enough 
that the other prisoners heard them. And then we read that God responded. It was, it was an earthquake, but it was more than an earthquake. The cells burst open. The chains of the prisoners fell off. And all this happened, and the jailer saw what was going on, and, and he was pretty sure that he was a dead man because he would be assigned the sentences of any prisoners who escaped. Uh, so rather than go through the shame and punishment of that, he decided that he should take out his sword and, uh, and end his life himself then and there. That's when Paul cried out to announce that all the prisoners were still there, that nobody had fled. And I'm not sure which is the bigger miracle, really, that they were all set free in this way or that they would all choose to remain. But in any case, the jailer ran in to see Paul and Silas, and he must have known something about them and their message in the city because he, he brought this question. He said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And he received his answer. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them. He washed their wounds, and then immediately he and his house were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. And there's some nice symmetry there. Uh, the jailer brought water to wash Paul and Silas's wounds. And then Paul and Silas used water to baptize him and the other members of his household who came to, to faith as well. Everyone was filled with joy. The next day, Paul and Silas revealed that they were Roman citizens and the magistrates had erred very seriously in beating them and imprisoning them the way they had. And so rather than being run out of town under a dark cloud of suspicion, Paul actually forced the, the city's rulers to personally and publicly escort him out of town with kind of an honor guard when he was good and ready to leave. So what can we say about the faith of these missionaries when it was put to the test? And the first and obvious thing is that they possessed tremendous confidence and trust in God. While bleeding and physically broken, they retained spiritual strength to praise and pray through the dark night. That's extraordinary faith, and seeing it had a powerful effect on those other prisoners and on the jailer as well. The great British Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon once said that any fool can sing in the day. It's an easy thing to sing when we read the notes by daylight, but the skillful singer is he who can sing when there is not a ray of light to read by. Songs in the night only come from God. They are not in the power of men. It's one thing to praise God when we feel thankful. It's when we have what we need, when we can see the road ahead. But songs in the night, uh, in times of darkness, those are harder. Those require sincere faith. Can we have faith like that? And maybe that doesn't even seem like a fair question because we're talking about Paul. Paul who came to faith by meeting the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus, who received visions of all kinds, who received these powerful confirmations of his ministry. I mean, plenty of Christians have not experienced anything that dramatic. But that does not prevent any of us from having strong faith. Faith indeed like this. Because faith is not about certainty. It's not about God having proven himself to us. Confirmations of faith are a wonderful thing and they're welcome. But as Hebrews 11 famously reminds us, faith is confidence in what we hope for. It's assurance of what we do not see. 
Christian faith is not blind or uninformed, but it does require a step into the unknown. It means believing that what we think God has told us is true. It means letting that actually determine our actions and reshape our lives. And it means that we take the commands and the example and the promises of Jesus very, very seriously. And so, yes, you can have faith like that. Not perfect faith, not faith without moments of doubt or frustration, but faith that is strong enough for whatever you might face in this life. And I can't prove that to you. I'm speaking out of faith myself, but also having, having seen people with faith like this. These are the sorts, there are, however, sorts of, these sorts of things that we can do that will help us to grow and strengthen our faith. And I want to talk about those in a minute. But before that, I want to highlight one other aspect of what a life of faith meant for Paul and Silas, because it moved them toward this deep love and compassion that we should note here. Because the jailer of the story would seem to be their enemy. He was part of the oppressive system that had harmed and abused them. But Paul and Silas risked staying in that jail, not knowing what would happen to them as a result, out of care and concern for him, for that jailer. They even convinced the other prisoners to do the same. And it seems to me that it was this act of loving self-sacrifice that helped cause things to click for that jailer. The gospel message became real to him because he saw it lived out before his eyes. And so rather than rushing to secure the cells and guard the prisoners, instead he went to Paul and Silas. And he wanted to know how he could be one of them. How could he also belong to this God? This God who could not only shake apart his jail, but who could cause men to behave in this way to protect him. Him who was in charge of confining them in their miserable state. I think too many people today think that Someone voting differently, someone having some different social or religious views and opinions is enough to declare them enemies. But in faith, Paul and Silas turned down the chance to escape from their unjust situation. They risked more consequences for the sake of someone who could very easily have been written off as their enemy. So can we have faith like this? Faith that causes us to see other people more in the way that God does. Faith that reaches out in love to someone instead of complaining to others about how foolish and frustrating they are. And again, maybe it seems like, well, this would be easier to have confident faith like this if God deployed an earthquake on our behalf, right? I can see that. But again, faith is not knowing exactly how God is going to solve your problems. Faith is about knowing that God's love for you is real and trusting him to give you what you need out of the fullness of that love. And when you have that faith, that makes room. It makes room for love for others, for godly love to be expressed, even to those people who are much harder to love. But now back to that question of how we could have this kind of faith. And I have two answers really to this. The First is really just to repeat Paul's answer. And then I want to add an observation about his sense of mission. See, the jailer asked Paul, how how does he begin that journey of faith? How could he start? And the initial response was very simple. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That wasn't all Paul had to say, but that was enough to begin. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Believe that God loved you enough to enter this world in the flesh, to go to the cross and defeat sin and death, And that he invites you to follow him. Believe that what he said is true and that the way he offers us to live is the best way. 
That's different from believing that church is what good people do on a Sunday morning or that believing certain things you, you do or say are all that's necessary to secure your, your ticket to heaven. It's different from believing there's a way that we can use God to get the things we want out of life. Those are all reasons that certain people pose as Christians, but sincere faith does not grow out of any of those things. As Hebrews 11 also teaches us, without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Having faith that can stand up to the greatest tests, it starts with that essential ingredient, with sincere belief. But I think that for this kind of faith to grow, for it to mature, it requires that we maintain a sense of mission. Right? The, the missionary journey that led Paul and his team to Philippi is filled with very clear purpose. Paul was confident that he had a calling to, to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, to the, the non-Jews of the Roman Empire. And he was commissioned by the church to go on this journey. He was directed by a vision to go to Macedonia. He had a very clear sense of what God wanted him to do. It was just to preach the gospel. It was to encourage believers. It was to build the church. Having clarity of purpose helps a great deal when we face difficulties. Because when you're confident in God's leading, it's much easier to keep trusting him when you encounter obstacles, right? We expect opposition and challenges when we are on a mission. But if we don't have clarity of purpose, if we don't have any sense of mission, then challenges and obstacles, they just seem pointless. And you might even start to think that the goal of life is just to try to avoid pain and discomfort. Or you can get caught up in somebody else's misguided mission, like the conspiracy theory movements that many North American Christians have been pulled into lately. And I'm not sure that the comfortable Christians of Canada know what to do with themselves a lot of the time. Right? We have our church services. We try to keep the bills paid for our, our buildings and programs. We try to offer the things that church people want. But a deeper sense of mission is sometimes lacking. And then the whole thing can just become about, well, what do I prefer? What do I expect my church to do for me? Or it becomes something that doesn't seem that important or essential. Right? Yes, church, that's a nice thing to do on a Sunday if the weather's good and none of the kids have games or practices. Studies in small groups, that, that'd be great, but no one has time for that as they hustle their way through life. The jobs and the duties of the church then start to fall on fewer and fewer shoulders. And some of them are just doing it out of obligation at this point rather than out of passion. And so it gets awfully easy to step back or to walk away because what was all this religious activity doing except making me feel tired? And whenever we start to actually emerge from the pandemic, that is going to be among the reasons that some people will not re-engage with their churches. Mission motivates What's the point of religious activity that isn't leading you somewhere important or helping you accomplish something that matters? Earlier this week, uh, it was Martin Luther King Day in the United States, and I'm not very well acquainted with his work, so I, I took a little bit of time and at least read through one of his most famous writings, which is the, the letter uh, from a Birmingham jail. And that was a letter he wrote from his jail cell, mostly to, to tell white pastors some things those who were sympathetic to the cause of civil rights, but who were reluctant to say or do much about it. 
And they would tell him, you should probably calm down, slow down. Just don't make everybody so uncomfortable or feel so threatened by what you're doing. And he would gently and clearly explain in this letter exactly why his mission was to cause tension and how they were willing to pay a price to do that. Dr. King wrote, And in so many past experiences, our hopes had been blasted and the shadow of deep disappointment settled upon us. We had no alternative except to prepare for direct action, whereby we would present our very bodies as a means of laying our case before the conscience of the local and national community. Mindful of the difficulties involved, we decided to undertake a process of self-purification. We began a series of workshops on nonviolence, and we repeatedly asked ourselves, are you able to accept blows without retaliating? Are you able to endure the ordeal of jail? These people, men and women, young and old, they trained and prepared themselves to face the water cannons and billy clubs and German shepherds and jail time that were coming their way if they would take to the streets and make their case that they were just as human as white Americans, just as deserving of fairness in law and opportunity in life and basic dignity and respect. Those were the obstacles that came with that mission, and they accepted them willingly. In many cases, it was their sincere faith in Jesus that sustained them, their commitment to biblical ideals of righteousness that convinced them of the, the cause being worth it. And then Dr. King also wrote in that same letter something that ties back to our book of Acts, which I think is, is worth hearing. He said, There was a time when the church was very powerful. In the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. When the early Christians entered a town, the people in power became disturbed and immediately sought to convict the Christians for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. But the Christians pressed on in the conviction that they were a colony of heaven, called to obey God rather than man. Small in number, they were big in commitment. They were too God-intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated, he says. But they, by their effort and example, they brought an end to such ancient evils as infanticide and the gladiatorial contests. And isn't that just what happened in Acts 16? Four Christians came to town. They challenged the economic interests of those who were exploiting a slave. They immediately were accused of disturbing the peace and thrown in jail, and yet they walked away victorious, with a new church left behind to continue their work. Because when you embark on the mission that God has given you, fully committed to obeying Him, well, you don't lose. God does not lose. It doesn't mean success comes easily or quickly. We may never know the results of some of the things we do answering God's call, but it will matter. What we do in faithfulness always matters. I was trying to think about the missions that different people are on through this season and through this strange season of the pandemic. And I think I've been on a mission through this pandemic season to be part of bringing my family through all this in a healthy state. I think quite a few of us have. That's a mission that required a lot of long days, putting my preferences about, well, sometimes most things, off on the side. But what a small price that is to pay in the service of, in particular, trying to raise three whole and healthy kids who will know that they are loved by God 
and their family and God's church, and who I hope and pray will come to recognize that they've been gifted to serve others in a way that will be life-giving and world-changing. And that is a, a terrifying and wonderful mission. I've had another mission through the pandemic to try to faithfully serve the church without letting the limitations of the pandemic wear me down too much. It's been very different to pastor through this, often frustrating and humbling. And I don't know where it's all meant to go. But I believe in Jesus. I trust him to make good come from this challenging season. There is a renewed mission waiting for us as a community of faith as we emerge from this pandemic. Of this, I am certain. And so I'd like to turn it to you and ask, what about you? What is your mission right now? What does God want you to care about and to pour yourself into? Are you called to encourage, to make good use of phones and letters and online messages to connect with people, to lift them up while we're being asked to stay apart? Are you called to generosity in this time of struggle for many in our community, harnessing those resources God has given you to do something purposeful that will make a difference in the lives of others? Are you called to pursue justice, advocating for those who are not being given their due or lending your voice to support those who, who don't have one? Are you called to do some soul searching, to ask big questions, to look for meaningful answers about faith and life and what God wants for you and from you? Are you called to leadership, to be one of those who will accept the burdens and the frustrations that come with taking on the responsibility for the well-being of others, a high calling that has its own blessings? Let me just encourage you not to be comfortable with I don't know as your answer. Do not be missionless. The pandemic did not take away anyone's mission. It might have made them harder. It might have forced changes to the way we carry them out. But God created you and never leaves you without purpose. He's given us all callings that are worth caring about, worth committing ourselves to, even worth sacrificing or suffering for. And those things that are truly worth living for are worth suffering for at times. Where is your mission because it's in service to these kinds of things that we grow, that we strengthen our faith. In mission, probably even more so than ever just attending a worship service or being part of a Bible study or group or participating in some other church program, that these things, that this faith strengthening happens. Mission is where we get to see God at work, where we get to participate in that work. That's where we get to see how he helps us overcome obstacles, how he brings about good even in darker times. It's that sense of mission that helps us mature to the point where we can accept pain with prayer and praise and where we can turn to our enemy with love and compassion. You don't need much faith to sit around and complain about the state of the world. And you won't end up with much faith living that way either, especially when you are inevitably put to the test. So let me pray now. Let me ask you to return to this question of mission in your own prayer and in your prayer for your church as we move through this season and into whatever it is that comes next. Lord God, help us to not just be passive people who let the world go by, who try just to not let ourselves get in too deep, not be inconvenienced, not be weighed down by, by any suffering or discomfort. Lord God, but Allow us to be people who can accept those things willingly when we discover our sense of calling, when we see what our mission is. 
Because when we sense that you've called us to mission, then we know there'll be obstacles, that we know there'll be struggles, that we know there'll be times of tiredness and darkness, but we also know why it's worth it. Because we know what you've done for us. We know that your calling is going to make a difference in the lives of others. We know that we carry a gift and that you want to use us to share that with other people. And so I pray that you would allow us to to renew our sense of mission as individuals who follow you and as a church that has some work to do to get back on its feet after this pandemic starts to wind down. So Lord God, I, I pray that you would do that simple thing that you would remind us, that you would nag us, that you would help us, that you would guide us towards seeing what it is our mission is in this season and the season to come. Holy Spirit, help us with this, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.